All rise. The Honorables, the Chief Judge and Judges of the Court of Appeals of the State of North Carolina. Oh yes, oh yes, oh yes. The Court of Appeals is now in session. God save the state and this honorable court. Be seated. Thank you. Good morning and welcome to the Court of Appeals. I am Judge Donna Stroud and today to my right we have Judge John Tyson to my left, Judge Brent Gore. And we have one case for argument today. It looks like you are all ready to go. Um, we have the clock set automatically for five minutes of rebuttal. If you want something different, or y'all may have already taken care of that, I don't know. Um, just let us know, and um, we'll set the clock accordingly. So, are we good? Okay. All right. We can proceed with the appellate. Uh, good morning, Your Honors. May it please the court. My name is Chris Blake, and I'm here today on behalf of the appellants in this case. Uh, and unless the court is inclined to start uh, somewhere else, I'm going to go right into the issue of general and special employment as presented by uh, the facts of this case. Um, the, the parties in this case are in agreement that the applicable test for uh, whether or not Atlantic is a special employer is the three-part test from the Collins decision. And that three-part test is, number one, has the employee made a contract of hire, either express or implied, with the special employer? Was the work that was being done at the time of injury essentially the work of the special employer? And did the special employer have the right to control the details of that work? In this case, the dispute between the parties only concerns the first and third elements of the test in Collins, because no one disagrees that at the time the plaintiff suffered his injury in this case, the work he was doing was the work of Atlantic. So everyone's in agreement that the second part of the Collins test is satisfied. On the first and third elements of the Collins test, what the appellants contend is that this court's decision in Henderson v. Manpower is the most applicable of the numerous decisions of this court on the issues of general and special employment. In the Henderson case, like this case, there was no express contract of employment between the injured worker and the special employer. But this court nonetheless found that an implied contract manifestly existed. The court's words, choice of words in the Henderson case was manifestly existed because of the following things. Number one, that the special employer accepted the plaintiff's work and was obligated to pay the temporary agency for that work, and the temporary agency in turn paid the injured worker. The injured worker was doing the work of the special employer at the time he was injured, and the special employer had the right to and did control the details of that work. On the issues of control, what the court in Henderson focused on were the following. One, that the work being performed by the injured worker, in that case cutting trees and clearing land, was the work of the special employer. In doing that work, the injured worker was under the sole control and direction of the special employer. And significantly, in Henderson, and, and as, as we would argue should be applied in this case, the temporary agency in Henderson, Manpower, had no control over the injured worker while he was on assignment. And in fact, what this court noted was that the temporary agency had no interest in controlling the injured worker's work 
because its business was the hiring of employees to assign to others for their use on a temporary basis. That's the same thing we have in this case. Coastal was a temporary employment agency that assigned the plaintiff to work at Atlantic Corporation. How important is the ability to hire and fire? The ability to hire and fire is a factor that should be considered among the many factors in determining whether or not there's special employment, but it's not the determinative factor. Is it, is it an important factor? It is an important factor. And in, and in this case, which is, uh, I think, something that makes the facts of this case in some ways even stronger than the Henderson case, in, in Henderson, the temporary agency hired the injured worker, interviewed him, and said, well, we have this assignment for you, and they just sent him out to work with a slip of paper and said, here's the supervisor you report to, and he started doing the work. In this case, Coastal hired the plaintiff, but then before he could go to work for Atlantic, the plaintiff went to Atlantic, met with his supervisor, and essentially had a job interview. And they had to approve him and notify Coastal that they approved him before he was placed on temporary assignment at Atlantic. This is an old concept. You don't hear it much anymore. It's, it's called the borrowed servant. Are you familiar with that? Yes. How does that apply here? Well, whether it's called the borrowed servant doctrine or it's general versus special employment, I think that those are, the are same, terms that are, are, are the, the same, same and are essentially interchangeable um, because, and, and in this case, the, the, the fact that it's a temporary agency that is the general employer makes the case a little bit different than other cases where you have general versus special employment. And, and the reason is, as the court noted in Henderson, the business of a temporary agency is the process of lending out or having somebody borrow your employees on a temporary basis. That's the only business they have. So the fact that, that they are the employer in terms of withholding wages, that they did provide their own level of workers' compensation, correct? Yes, they did. And that agency acknowledged and paid until they became insolvent. That's correct. Their, their insurance company was through uh, another company called Century Employer Organization, and the, the, uh, ins the insurance company that became insolvent was called Guarantee Insurance Company. So but for that, would we be here today? But for the insolvency? Uh, you probably wouldn't be here today. So I want to also, and I don't want to rate your time, but I also want to ask you about the timing of when your client decided to assert this claim, given the passage of time? So, so the, uh, to address that question, Your Honor, um, the, the involvement of the Guarantee Association, and as the Court knows from other cases in which the Guarantee Association has been a party before this Court, the Guarantee Association doesn't become involved unless and until there is an insurance insolvency. So in the case of Guarantee Insurance Company, that didn't happen until, if I'm correct, November of 2017. So a couple of years after the plaintiff suffered his injury in this case. And, and we don't dispute that prior to that time, the claim had been reported to Guarantee Insurance Company, and Guarantee Insurance Company accepted the claim as compensable and was paying the claim. So the Guarantee Association and, and that claim was on the basis of Mr. Thomas being an employee of Coastal. Correct. 
And, and no one disputes that he was an employee of Coastal, because in general in special employment you have a situation where the injured worker is the employee of both. Okay? You don't have a special employment unless you also concede that the general employer is also an employer. Um, so the Guarantee Association becomes involved, and I think in sometime in 2018 is when they filed a motion with the Industrial Commission to add Atlantic and its insurer as necessary parties. That was granted by the Industrial Commission, and they came in and participated and were part of the hearing before the Deputy Commissioner and also the proceedings before the full Industrial Commission. So the timing Up until that time, based on the original claim from Mr. Thomas, that claim was accepted, it was being paid, there really was no disputes at that time, correct? That's my understanding, yes, Your Honor. Had there been a hearing or determination on the underlying merit of his claim, or was it just a stipulated claim? I don't, I don't know if it was a stipulated claim. I think there may have been some issues that were being contested, but this issue was not, was not being raised. So, for example, guarantee insurance. Was there an open made. proceeding? That's what I'm getting to. Yes, there was an open proceeding. The plaintiff had filed a claim, and, and as, as noted in the, the plaintiff's brief and in our reply brief under 9724, that claim was filed with the Industrial Commission, the original claim, well within the two-year period under Section 97-24. And, and so circling back to the question of the timing, when the Guarantee Association becomes involved because of the insolvency of the insurance company, under the Insurance Guarantee Association Act, certain things get triggered. And one of those is this, uh, the, the provision in the statute dealing with non-duplication of recovery, which permits and gives the Guarantee Association the statutory right in any claim to look at the claim, to make a determination whether or not there may be another solvent insurance company who's got responsibility for this claim. And, and so by adding Atlantic and its insurer Sentry, that's what the Guarantee Association did as a party here. It looked at this claim and said, wait a second, no one has previously raised this issue of general and special employment. We think Atlantic is the special employer of this uh, injured plaintiff, and we want to we want to try and bring in Atlantic and its insurer because if we're correct about that, then Atlantic's insurer Century becomes primarily liable under the non-duplication of recovery, and and importantly because the Guarantee Association is not the legal successor of Guarantee Insurance Company, it's not bound by any decisions that Guarantee Insurance Company made prior to its insolvency. So if you look at the Henderson case, the reason that the Henderson case reached the appellate level was because in Henderson, the temporary insurance agency and its insurance company, they settled the claim with the plaintiff at the Industrial Commission, but appealed and said, hey, we think that this other company is the general employer, and they should bear part of the responsibility for the payment of the claims. So they raised the issue. The fact that neither Coastal nor Guarantee Insurance Company raised that issue prior to the insolvency, that was their choice. I, I can't speak for why they made that decision. We weren't involved at the time. But for the Guarantee Association, they're not bound by what transpired prior to the insolvency. And so this case presents um, a situation where the Guarantee Association becomes involved they investigate the claims part of their duties under the statute, and 
properly accepted the plaintiff's claim as a covered claim under our statute because it was a covered claim, because Guarantee Insurance had issued a policy to Coastal. He was employed by Coastal. But as the and even the Industrial Commission in their the full Industrial Commission in their opinion and award noted that if the plaintiff has a claim against Atlantic and against Century, that claim has to pay primary to the Guarantee Association. And so that's why the issue was joined, and, and we would argue that there's no really no issue with timing because it was timely raised by the Guarantee Association post-insolvency when we became in the claim and we had the opportunity to bring those additional parties in. Is the net effect to Mr. Thomas of any consequence? It's really not, um, because his, his claim was accepted and paid, and uh, really at this point the issue before the court, if, if the court affirms the Industrial Commission, then the Guarantee Association will continue to pay those claims unless there's an appeal to the Supreme Court and it's reversed there. If, the, if this court reverses the Industrial Commission, then Century, what will happen, we would argue the proper thing to happen is that Century would take on the ongoing payments of the plaintiff, and then Century would be obligated to reimburse the Guarantee Association for everything it's paid up until this point. So there's a retroactive uh, component to that uh as well? Yes, that's part of the claim that the Guarantee Association asserted at the Industrial Commission. But, but you know, the argument that, that the uh, appellees make about how the Guarantee Association is acting um, at, at cross-purposes to its statutory uh, purposes is really, uh, we, we would argue, is, has no merit, um, because we've done nothing to prejudice the plaintiff. The plaintiff has always been compensated the benefits under Chapter 97 that it's owed. And the Guarantee Association, even when it challenges issues like this in proceedings before the Industrial Commission, it, it never makes an injured plaintiff not get paid by the Guarantee Association while we litigate these issues with another party. Um, and the insured, Coastal, it's not prejudiced. It's, if there's coverage, it's been covered. And Atlantic isn't prejudiced because none of this would come out of Atlantic's own pocket. It's really a dispute between the Guarantee Association and Century the Guarantee Association and a solvent insurer that under the non-duplication of recovery provisions we say should be primary to anything that the Guarantee Association should have to pay under the Guarantee Association statute. Are the injuries to Mr. Thomas, are they lifelong? Is it a permanent uh, payment? I, I would, I, I don't know. I, I'm not as familiar with that aspect of the case and I would defer to the plaintiff's attorney about that, but I believe that there will be ongoing benefits in this case that go on for some time. Now, does the, does the comp uh, compensation not only for lost wages, but also for all medical payments as well? Yes. The, yes. So the it's a whole panoply of benefits that we be available to Mr. Thomas. That's correct. By, by virtue of a workers' compensation claim. That's correct. And, and notwithstanding the Guarantee Association's involvement in this proceeding, it's my understanding that those, those issues have not been contested and all those benefits to Mr. Thomas have been paid. Is that prejudice to... Um, Atlantic by not being able to direct care and, and not being able to be involved from the initial claim? If, if there's any prejudice there, then, then that was the choice that they made with their insurer not to accept the claim as compensable. Was, was any claim ever served on them, though? When it, I don't believe there was a claim served on them at the time the plaintiff filed his claim with the Industrial Commission. They were added as parties by the Guarantee Association. So up until that point, 
they were not participating in Mr. Thomas's care or or directing his care or anything else? No, I don't believe they were. I don't believe they were. Does that is that one fact? Is that a consideration whether or not the prejudice to them for the length of time that went? I, I don't believe that, that that is a factor because if, if it is, it's a factor that arose because Coastal and Guarantee is a guarantee insurance company before the insolvency, again, for reasons that I can't speak of or speak to, uh, chose not to raise the special employer issue on the facts of this case. They could have. I would argue they should have given the facts of this case, but they didn't do it. It was only after the Guarantee Association became involved that those issues were raised. Your client's uh, existence is based on providing benefits to injured workers once their carrier has become insolvent, correct? That's correct. And their fees that are paid to your client, premiums, fees, whatever you want to call it, to maintain that fund in the event of an insolvency. The, 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 the resources of the Guarantee Association from which they pay covered claims come from two primary sources. Uh, one is... The insolvent insurance company typically has a special deposit that's made with the Department of Insurance. It's usually not enough to cover the cost of the insolvencies, but that's one source of funds. The other source is we uh, have a mechanism to assess our member companies uh, to pay the cost of the insolvency. So that means that all the other licensed property and casualty insurance companies in the state are required if there's an insolvency and we need $10 million, we assess everybody based upon their premium writings. But the cost of those assessments ultimately is borne by the taxpayers because all of those assessments can be offset against premium taxes over the five years after the assessment takes place. So it, we can raise the funds, but it reduces the overall tax uh, revenue to the state because premium taxes are offset by the cost of those assessments. So as opposed to, is it fair to say that the very existence of the Guarantee Association is for a situation just like this, where you have a member carrier who is bankrupt or insolvent, and their claims out there, their funds have been set aside, reserves that have been set aside, um, is it an obligation that you have to go after any potential offset? Yes. Is that in the statute? That's what we, that's what we submit, is that the, the, the General Assembly, the way that the Guarantee Association statute is structured, it gives the, the Guarantee Association certain rights and obligations that make it different from the insolvent insurance company. And one of those, the one that's at issue in this case, is the non-duplication of recovery. And that, that statutory provision has come before this Court on prior occasions. And so in, in the Reinhardt case that was decided, I think, in 1989, there there was a, an uninsured motorist carrier. Um, so if you think about the, the situation involving an uninsured motorist carrier, if the solvent company never becomes insolvent, its UM coverage is never triggered. But as soon as that carrier becomes insolvent, that becomes an uninsured motorist, and they think, well, we never would have had to pay that claim, but because there's an insolvency, their coverage has to be exhausted, and the Guarantee Association gets to offset anything they pay. So in your rights are not just subrogated, the subrogated rights to the insolvent carriers? No, we have, we have rights o over and above those of the insolvent carrier. 
and that's by virtue of the statute. Uh, and in the Lincoln medical case, it was a medical malpractice case uh, involving joint tort feasors, and, and this court allowed uh, the Guarantee Association to enforce the non-duplication recovery so that uh, the, the carrier for uh, a hospital, which became insolvent, um, uh, was required — the, the plaintiff was required to exhaust from a solvent carrier. They didn't exhaust, and because they didn't exhaust, the Guarantee Association wasn't obligated. And in that case, the hospital voluntarily paid a settlement and tried to get reimbursement from the Guarantee Association. And this Court said we weren't obligated to reimburse them. Um, and so this is really the first time, I think, that this Court has had occasion in a case to look at non-duplication in the context of workers' compensation. But if you look at the language of 58.48.55, which is the non-duplication of recovery provision, it plainly states that workers' compensation insurance is subject to non-duplication of recovery and must be exhausted. And so that brings us back to, in this case, how would that — how would that apply? And we would argue it would apply because Atlantic, by virtue of this Court's decisions on general and special employment, Atlantic was properly a special employer, and to the extent it was a uh, a special employer as a matter of law, its insurance company would be obligated. Now, but for the insolvency, they might say, well, we would split the coverage 50-50 with the, with the coverage for the general employer, but because that carrier, Guarantee Insurance, is now insolvent and the Guarantee Association is involved, they become obligated actually for 100 percent because under the non-duplication of recovery, they have to be — their coverage has to be exhausted before the Guarantee Association pays. Um, just briefly, uh, in the time I have remaining, I, I want to complete my argument with respect to the special employment issue. Um, on the existence of an implied contract, in this case, no one's arguing that there was an express contract of employment between the plaintiff and Atlantic Corporation. And the existence of an implied contract, uh, the evidence of that implied contract in this case includes that Atlantic consented to uh, the arrangement with plaintiff coming to work there after an in-person interview. Atlantic was billed by Coastal for the plaintiff's work, and Atlantic paid for it. And the plaintiff was doing the work of Atlantic at the time of his injury. On the issue of control, which is that third element of the Collins test, um, there was um, evidence at the Industrial Commission that we would uh, argue that the full Industrial Commission did not factor in and apply in its decision concerning uh, the control that was exercised, actually exercised over the plaintiff. In interrogatory responses that were verified by Atlantic, they, they replied to an interrogatory that the plaintiff was a temporary worker assigned to do work at its Tabor City facility in furtherance of its business with the assignment to drive a forklift and that the plaintiff was, quote, supervised on site by Edsel Suggs, who was one of their employees. There was a detailed job description for the forklift operator, which says that uh, it would involve packing and moving other items as instructed by supervisors. Again, Coastal had no supervisors of its own on site. The only supervisors on site, uh, like there were in Henderson, were the supervisors that were in place at Atlantic, um, the Industrial Commission seemed to think that since he was only given instruction once a week, they weren't supervising him. But even if the instruction came only once a week, it's clear that they were telling plaintiff what to do and giving him some instructions. 
the position that was filled was a forklift operator. And the plaintiff, when he was assigned uh, by Coastal to Atlantic, was actually prohibited from operating the forklift until they showed him a safety video, a safety and training video. And as this court has recognized in other decisions, the right of control is almost invariably linked to the provision of valuable equipment. That's what that forklift was. That forklift was provided by Atlantic and not by Coastal. Um, so again, I think it's significant that no one in this case disputes the second prong of the Collins test. Uh, and all the parties are in agreement that the plaintiff was doing the work of Atlantic at the time of his injury. Atlantic's arguments, we would submit that, it, that, it, that, it had, that Atlantic's, their argument that it had no control over the plaintiff at the time he was injured and at the time he was performing Atlantic's work simply defies logic and common sense. It creates a scenario where Atlantic admits that it was hiring temporary employees to do its work at its own facility but it was doing that without any supervision and control. And it was allowing a temporary worker, like the plaintiff in this case, to essentially run amok at their facility and do whatever work he deemed was appropriate and operate a forklift in the process of doing that. And, and without them exercising any control whatsoever over the plaintiff. If they're hiring him as, on a temporary basis to come in and do their work at their facility, we believe the Industrial Commission committed error in finding that there was no control or no right of control over the exercise of plaintiff's work uh, in this case. We believe that all of the elements of the Collins test have been satisfied. We believe that this case is just as strong as the case that came before this court in Henderson v. Manpower uh, and, and that the court should follow Henderson v. Manpower and like it did in Henderson v. Manpower, it should reverse the Industrial Commission with a finding that the plaintiff was, uh, that, that Atlantic was the special employer of the plaintiff in this case, and that um, Atlantic and its insurer, Century, are obligated for the payment of benefits in this case. And I see I'm right on my five minutes, so I will reserve that time. Let me ask you one question. Um, are you bound by the Commission's finding of fact? Uh, the, the, we, we argued in our brief, Your Honor, and I, I don't believe there should be much dispute about this, but the standard of review um, is a de novo standard of review. In On conclusions of law. Well, no, I think that, that in, on the issue of whether there was an employer-employer relationship, the Wicker decision and the McGuine decision both acknowledge that the existence of that employment relationship is a jurisdictional fact, and we would argue as the court did in those cases, that the Court of Appeals has a duty to make its independent findings of jurisdictional facts from consideration of all the evidence in the record. And so I think that this court has the ability under that de novo standard of review to review all the evidence in the record, all the evidence that wasn't cited in the opinion and award, but was in the record that we cited in our brief to reach the conclusion that um, the requirements for special employment have been met. Thank you. All right, for the um, appellees, or appellee, however y'all are going to do that. Thank you. May it please the court. My name is Richard Granowski. I represent the appellees, Atlanta Corporation and Century Insurance Company. In this matter, I discussed with plaintiff's counsel, Mr. Simmons, uh, they are gonna, he's going to take five minutes uh, of this time 
so I'm going to try to keep my comments uh, subject to the will of the court uh, to 25 minutes. This court should affirm the dismissal of Atlantic Corporation and Century Insurance Company because, first, the plaintiff, who is the party with the burden of proof to prove an employment relation with Atlantic, if there was to be one, simply failed to meet that burden. Secondly, Atlantic Corporation and Coastal Group had a specific agreement over the course of years that establishes that both of those companies understood that in the relationship that they had entered that Coastal would be solely responsible to obtain and maintain workers' compensation coverage to cover any assigned worker and that further they would be solely liable for the payment of workers' compensation benefits uh, in the event there was a claim that arose with an assigned worker. That, that point seems to have been missed in the guarantee association's uh, considerations uh, and, and comments about the case, but it's an essential distinguishing factor between the cases that they cite of Henderson and Brown and the cases of Wicker and Anderson, uh, as well as others cited in the brief that distinguish this case from the result that they're focused on under the Special Employment Doctrine. Uh, under 9751, the legislature expressly considered that there would be situations where you might have two companies that incur a joint liability. Now, we don't believe that's the case here. However, if we assume arguendo that it was, the agreement between Coastal and uh, Atlanta Corporation clearly falls within the consideration of that provision and places all liability and responsibility onto Coastal to the exclusion of Atlantic for workers' compensation. Finally, what the Guarantee Association is doing here is simply contrary to the purpose of the association. Under the law of uh, third-party beneficiaries within contract, it's clear that Atlantic Corporation was a third-party beneficiary of that policy of insurance. It was expressly purchased under an obligation entered between Coastal and Atlantic Corporation for the very purpose of satisfying any need for benefits and surgery <coughs> to an assigned worker. It is not the province of the Guarantee Association to assert itself in a way to harm the very victims of a insolvency that was not foreseeable or planned. Now, before I move into a discussion of why we believe the Commission correctly determined that there was no special employment relationship established, I want to kind of take a broader view because I think it's essential in this case because you very quickly get lost in a thicket when you get into these Lent employee cases. 
and you get into the special employment arguments, you start getting into these arguments on very molecular issues. Well, let, let, me, let me raise that then. My last question to uh, counsel was, how do we review the Commission's decision? We generally have a deferential review of Commission's decisions. Um, if there's any competent evidence to support the findings of fact, we're not to reweigh. They've made an argument that this is a jurisdictional determination, which gives us a de novo review as opposed to, quote, being bound by the Commission's findings of fact. Do you want to address that as a threat? Uh, I will. Thank you, Your Honor. Uh, so the case law is mixed on that point. The Leggett-McCotter case, which is referenced in the briefs, when you read that, you can see that they were talking about competent evidence to support uh, the determinations of the Commission and using the typical deferential standard that would apply in appellate review of a decision from the Workers' Compensation or uh, from the Industrial Commission. Now, the Wicker case uh, and other more recent cases clearly demonstrate that the court can look into and, in fact, reweigh uh, the facts that go into the determination of whether or not there was an employment relationship that triggered the jurisdiction of the Industrial Commission. So, obviously, from my standpoint, I would be very pleased with the standard being one of limited review. Uh, I, I can't in good faith say that that's what I believe the law that is on the books to compel in this case. Where does Henderson fall? Uh, in terms of, of the level of review? Yes. Um, well, I can grab the case and look, but I cannot off my memory at this moment. Uh, cite exactly how they handled it. I don't recall. Is Henderson controlling? Is it? Is it all fours on this case? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Um, I was making notes about that uh, when Mr. Blake was speaking. Um, so here's a here's a fundamental, absolutely fundamental distinction throughout all of this. In this case before the court today, the plaintiff, the temporary agency, the client company are all uniform in their agreement that one, the employer was the temporary agency, not Atlantic. And then two, this doesn't involve the plaintiff, but both Coastal and Atlanta Corporation's witnesses testified that Yes, they had an agreement under which Coastal was solely responsible for the maintenance of workers' compensation uh, benefits and the payment of such benefits. This is totally different from the Henderson case. Counsel, is there any bearing that's to be given to the prior training and certification that the plaintiff would have had to have already had being a forklift operator and pretty much, hey, the, the skill set is something that Atlantic wouldn't have been responsible for. Come here, work, do your job. What, what factor, if any, does that play into 
the employee relationship for Atlantic versus someone who needed to come there and be trained on site to do their job. Does that have a Yes, Your Honor. Well, you know, I think what, you know, if we go back to the Collins case, you know, what the real focus on in terms of the level of control exercised uh, and the level of management and instruction as to details is really a proxy to look and say, is this particular employee somebody that conducted themselves in a way that they submitted to such an extensive level of control of the alleged special employer that, in a sense, that itself demonstrates that they were an employee It crossed a threshold into employment. And it really is all getting at this uh, implied contract of hire concept and the concept of consent by that employee. So, you know, in this case, and I think actually Collins is a great case for this, uh, I think this fits very well within the notion of what was done at Atlantic versus what was in the interest of the temporary agency and what was innate to the employee himself, that uh, it was minimal, even though it looked like something more. And so that's the threshold we're looking at is, you know, in these other cases, you know, I take somebody uh, out into a construction project with no background. Uh, And we're talking about the, the Henderson case. And I put them out with saws and equipment in a place where we're cutting down trees, a highly dangerous occupation, and one with very clear procedural needs and requirements to maintain safety. The temporary temporary agency is nowhere near there, doesn't have the expertise, can't control that environment. Well, something happens out there. I think that's, you know, I think when you look at it in those terms, you think, well, that's that's a, a higher level of control. That's placing the employee in a special risk that they were in the best position to manage. And so I, I can see that uh, to an extent. When you look at the evidence that's in the record in this case, one, there clearly wasn't that level of control exercised. Uh, the activities were common activities. But also you'll see in the record, in the relationship between Coastal and Atlantic, Coastal had a set of specifications about what the client could and could not ask of an employee and put requirements or an assigned employee and put in requirements about what they could and could not do, especially around motor vehicle operation uh, and such things. So uh, the control just isn't here in this case. And, you know, to How me, do you respond to the fact that Atlantic was the one that provided the training on how, how to operate the specific piece of equipment that he was injured on? Well, the, I think the evidence in the record is that a single video was shown regarding forklift safety. And so it was. I mean, it was. I don't think that that crosses the threshold to show that there was an implied consent by Mr. Thomas to a special employment by Atlantic, or for that matter, an offer by Atlantic uh, for him to be employed. The thing in this case that, that I think is just fundamental is we're looking at a situation where before the Insurance Guarantee Association showed up over three years later after the fact, 
and claims Atlantic was the employer, you had a plaintiff, you had a temporary agency, you had the employer who all understood that this person was solely the employee of the temporary agency and that the temporary agency was solely responsible for workers' compensation in the case, or should an injury arise uh, with an assigned associate. So, you know, for, when I look over the facts, and, and what I see is we're not talking about can we imply and offer an acceptance of employment. We're talking about can we create an absolute fiction because none of the parties believe before and, in fact, at hearing that what the Guarantee Association is maintaining is true. Well, the commission on finding of fact 28 and finding of fact 31, that's record 146 and 147. In two places, the commission found, by preponderance of the evidence, entire record, plaintiff's only employer was the Coastal Group. And then on 31, Coastal Group was plaintiff's sole employer at the time of the plaintiff's injury by accident. Again, I go back to the threshold question in my mind is how does this court review those findings? Do we, do we say if there's evidence in the record to support them, we're bound by them? Or are we free under a jurisdictional review to go back and make an independent determination? I very much want to say that this court has no ability to review that. Uh, I, I can't in good faith say that reading the cases, that is the compelled response. I think the court could, could, could take that position. I think it would probably be reviewed at the Supreme Court, and I don't know how it would work out. But I would be very happy for that result. Does the case turn on that, on how? this court feels whether we're bound by those two factual findings i didn't i believe it does not because i think the industrial commission is correct the you know the the court in its review is not obligated to accept this per se rule that has been forwarded by the guarantee association that in any temporary uh, employment staffing situation you've got a general and special employer i think that's absolutely contrary to the law and, you know, the law in our cases are just a tangled thicket and contradictory, and you can find things to support anything, which is why I think you just have to look at it with some common sense and look at it in terms of what's the impact of adopting, you know, such a, a draconian rule to say, okay, industry, you're both liable. You know, I think that's where 9751 comes into play. That It's just would be incredibly unsettling to the temporary staffing market to suddenly say, hey, employers, you can use the temp, but you've got to provide your own independent, in fact, duplicative insurance coverage, even if you do the right thing and arrange as part of that assignment specific coverage for that purpose. Uh, it, it, it doesn't make sense. I mean, to me, I think the Guarantee Association is trying to get the court to create a judicial version of a statutory employer provision, such as we have in motor carrier uh, and contractor 
situations under 97.19 and 97.19.1. There's no reason for it because, but for the Guarantee Association's resistance to paying a covered claim, all the businesses got what they wanted and the plaintiff is being covered. I just don't see any reason that this court should be unsettling the markets that have evolved in a temporary industry that is profitable for the temporary uh, agencies. It's beneficial to industry and provides employment opportunities for workers. I, I think that we've been taken into a thicket that we don't belong in, and I think the answer in this case is easy. There was no employment between Atlantic uh, and the plaintiff. And if for some reason you decide there is under 9751, Atlantic is still not liable. I think I already uh, covered in sufficient depth the issue with the Guarantee Association in our position that it is fundamentally improper under the circumstances to be shifting the burden onto Atlantic Corporation of this insolvency because clearly Atlantic Corporation was an intended third-party beneficiary. In fact, they paid, per the testimony, a markup to cover and purchase this exact insurance. Uh, that's in the testimony uh, from Marilyn Cannon. Uh, so, you know, th there's a comment made in, in the uh, presentation of the Guarantee Association about no harm to Atlantic <coughs> Corporation. Well, if you look at the record, page 877, you'll see the Century Insurance Policy has a $200,000 per incident deductible. So, no, it's not neutral. And secondly, premiums for workers' compensation in this state are a function of payroll and job categorization. There's a formula, there's codes by job class. And then the premium is determined based on how many employees or what the payroll is for the year on that. So suddenly we're saying every temp that comes into an assignment suddenly has to be counted on payroll as an employee. Uh, for the company, you've suddenly changed the premium structure for any company that utilizes temps. So it, it's significantly disruptive. And I'm not sure if such cases uh, have, have come before you or this court on it, but you know I see this all the time in my practice in the statutory employer environment where the companies come and do an audit at the end of the year, and everybody who uh, worked with the subcontractor that didn't show a certificate of insurance on the front end gets that money pulled in an additional premium assessed because there was risk to the company that didn't appear just from payroll. This would be created throughout the entire industry by the result that's being urged uh, by the Guarantee Association. It's, it's not needed and it's not appropriate. So the statute that, that reflects duplicative coverage, you mentioned that. Yes, you, sir. You want to extend upon that a little bit as to why that's important here? Well, the, the uh, non-duplication provision certainly exists, but it's not saying that the person, the entity who suffered an injury 
because of the insolvency or lost rights or protections because of the insolvency should reach into their other pocket if they have one to pay the claims if they never had the benefit of that coverage in the first place. Are so, you making an, op an argument that the Guarantee Association is only subrogated to the rights of the defunct carrier, or do they have, under the statute, the ability beyond the subrogated claim? Now, I, I do believe that the Guarantee Association is its own entity. It's not a traditional uh, subrogation situation, but I also think that the overriding purpose of the Guarantee Association is to cover situations exactly like the one in front of the court today. But if they have a right of recovery, aren't they also obligated to, to pursue those remedies as well? Well, I think that, first off, I think, as is recognized by all, if they cannot prove uh, a special employment, they've got no relationship and no basis whatsoever to pursue Atlantic Corporation. So, I mean, that's the first thing. But I, th I think the Guarantee Association, is, as all entities with legal capacity, has the discretion as to determine what is a worthwhile thing to pursue and what is not. And I think in this case they've made a decision that I'm sure for their reasons seems like the right decision. I think for society it is not. Now, obviously, for my client, it's not. Well, your client's also making this, the required payments to the fund as well, correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a condition of being in the market. Thank you. Unless there are further questions uh, from the court, I don't have anything further. I presume that you would like for us to affirm the, the order and award of the commission. I would absolutely like that. Thank you very much. Thank you. Judge Tyson, to briefly answer your question, uh, the plaintiff is uh, severely injured, yes, will be for a long term, uh, still receiving compensation, still receiving medical compensation, and likely will challenge the 500-week cap that we presently have under 9729. Um, may it please the court, my name is Cameron Simmons. I'm a New Hanover County Bar. Um, I represent the plaintiff. I don't have a dog in this fight that, you've, that we've just spent, I guess, the last 45 minutes discussing. The only dog I have in this fight is against Defendant, defendant Atlantic in the way they read 9724. Um, and specifically, it's the plaintiff's contention that 9724 is a jurisdictional trigger for the North Carolina Industrial Commission, or in the opposite, a bar. If the claimant does not bring a claim within two years, then they have no ability to prosecute a claim before the commission. Um, it's our position that the way Defendant Atlantic, the appellee in this case, is reading it as a, as a statute of limitations, meaning it gives them a way out. Um, even this court, as of last month, under Judge Carpenter's hand, indicated in McCauley versus NCAA and t that, again, it is a jurisdictional bar. Is, is, does the plaintiff belong in front of this court or not? Nothing with regard to the defendants, who's liable, who's not. In fact, it's fairly um, commonplace in workers' compensation, specifically in what I call serial occupational disease cases like dysinosis, asbestosis, silicosis, where the claimant has a triggering event like a diagnosis or a death, and they name the mill, right? I worked at this mill for 45 years, and the, the, the mill and the present owner and the present carrier are on board. But then some discovery is done, and the present carrier says, I get what you're saying, 
but it's the guy I bought the mill from. That's his problem and his care. So then you add another defendant. And that second defendant comes in and says, I get what you're saying, but it's the guy I bought the mill from. And that can go back 20 or 30 years, and it can take several years to get everyone back to 1978 when the client started working. And, um, and so it's very commonplace for these defendants to be added well after the two years under 9724. Is that a subrogation right by virtue of stepping into the shoes of the defunct carrier? So, I'm sorry, repeat the question. Does the guarantee's right to come in come by virtue of their taking over the payment obligations of a defunct insurer? Correct. Where a timely claim was asserted against them? Correct. That's your argument. A timely claim was asserted against the original carrier that went insolvent, and by statute, the North Carolina Insurance Guarantee Association steps in. I don't say into the shoes of the previous, because I don't know that they're bound by the Form 60 or any of those others, but they, with, without another payor, they are the present payor on the claim. Yes. Um, so what, what I'm in the plan. Let me ask you one other question. Yes, sir. Are there limitations for your client that you're trying to avoid? You're here appearing uh, on the Appley's side. Correct. But for the benefit of your client, Mr. Thomas, are there limitations from the guarantee that you would be better off if you had another, if you had Century also involved? The answer to that depends. And that, so the answer is, that's, if, what my CP, that's what my CPA says all the time. <laughs> and then you pay taxes even that's more than you think you should. I get it. If your honors determine that this is a special employer, and if your honors determine that 9724 says that the plaintiff should have listed this special employer before the two years, and then if the Guarantee Association ultimately says, well, because the plaintiff didn't name the special employer, I don't think they, and the, I guess the language is, exhausted his remedies as against that special employer, then all of a sudden my client is out, right? He's done nothing wrong. He filed his claim. He got paid benefits for a year and a half until the insolvency. And then you have a competing interest, and my client is getting no compensation and no medical compensation because they think one way and they think one way, and my guy's sitting at home. Was there a gap in your client's coverage or benefits? Um, you mean payment of those benefits? Yes, Your Honor, there was. Uh, briefly on the TTD compensation, meaning the checks, uh, that's when I got involved. And then there was a larger gap on the medical compensation, uh, but that has since been resolved between Matt and I, and he is present. Is your, was, were you counsel on the original claim? Uh, I was counsel when the, in, uh, meaning as of the original date of accident? Yes. No. I, I, I believe I became counsel when the insolvency occurred and my client's checks stopped and he came to me and said, I was getting checks for a year and a half and now they're off and I can't get any treatment. So again, that's the reason I'm standing here, not only protect all those other plaintiffs in occupational disease cases, but to protect my client because I think if your honors read 9724 as a statute of limitations instead of a jurisdictional trigger, it provides an avenue for my client to be out two or three years from now if we have to come back here on the Guarantees Association's uh, determination of what is exhausting his remedies mean. And I'd like to prevent that now instead of two years from now. Thank you, Your Honors.
Thanks, Your Honor. Um, or Your Honors. Let me, let me first address um, what Mr. Simmons was just addressing. Um, I don't foresee any issue in the future where the Guarantee Association is going to say that the plaintiff has failed to exhaust his remedies. In a, in a workers' compensation claim, when there's an insolvency, while there might be some uh, interruption in the payments initially because of the insolvency, when the Guarantee Association gets involved, as he's pointed out, that issue generally gets taken care of because the Guarantee Association understands its obligations and understands that workers' compensation cases are different, okay? So the issue before the court is really between the Guarantee Association and Sentry. If there's a special employment situation, we believe Sentry is obligated, and Sentry is going to have to continue paying plaintiff and reimburse us for what's already been paid. But if, if the court says there's no special employment relationship, what's going to happen is that the Guarantee Association is going to continue to administer and handle this claim and deal with Mr. Simmons and any other issues that come up in the future. The Guarantee Association is not two years from now going to say, hey, you failed to exhaust your remedies. That, that issue is being dealt with in this case and it's not going to come up in the future. Um, in, in response to the arguments from the appellees, I want to address this issue of uh, the, ag the agreement that they said was this long-standing agreement between Coastal uh, and Atlantic where Coastal said we're going to be solely liable for works compensation. That agreement was a written agreement that was entered into in 2017. The plaintiff was injured in 2015. There was lots of testimony in the proceedings before the Industrial Commission about how well, we couldn't find that written agreement, but that's the, op that's the agreement we operated under prior to 2017. But the findings of fact say that they, there was evidence of invoices tendered and invoices paid. Correct. So they, they, the, the Commission's findings of fact say that the existence of the contract was sustained by, by that evidence. But actually what the Industrial Commission said was, based on the preponderance of the evidence, we find there was no existence of a written contract prior to 2017. And so this, this agreement is, at best, some type of arrangement. But to say that we're going to rely on the terms of this written agreement where Coastal said it would be solely liable, that only shows up in a written agreement that the Industrial Commission found did not exist prior to 2017. And on that issue, what the appellees are relying upon are the provisions of Section 9751. On its face, the language of Section 9751 applies when an employee shall, at the time of the injury, be in the joint service of two or more employers. In the law, there is a distinction between joint employment and general and special employment. This case is about general and special employment not joint employment. We're not arguing that there was joint employment. And the reason we're not arguing that there's joint employment is because joint employment requires that you be under the contract with two employers, under the simultaneous control of both, and that the service for each employer is the same or close related to that for the other. Those requirements aren't met here. That's why we're not arguing for joint employment. And 9751 applies only to joint employment. It, can, it does not, and because it's an exception to the general requirement about contracting away your obligations under Chapter 97, we would argue that provision should be strictly construed. And because we're arguing that it's general and special employment and not joint employment, that Section 9751 just has no application in this case. One last thing, uh, going back to findings of fact 28 
and 31, page 146 and 147 of the record. The Commission, by preponderance of the evidence, has found as fact plaintiff's only employer was the Coastal Group. What is that, is that finding of fact challenged by you, number one? And if it is, to what extent are we bound by that? We are challenging that because we're arguing that Atlantic was a special employer. And by that, by virtue of that, it's an employer, not they, the, the conclusion or the finding by the commission was that Coastal was the sole employer. We're challenging that because we're arguing that Atlantic was the special employer. And two, we would argue you're not bound by that because the standard review is de novo. And what I would urge the court to do is in this case, go back to the Henderson case, consider the facts that the court in Henderson found were sufficient for the finding of an implied contract. Because if you do that and you look at the record of this case, you will find that all of those factors that were present in Henderson are present in this case as well. And notwithstanding all the argument about testimony about who employed who and who agreed with whoever for what, the issue is an implied contract. And that is determined, the implied offer and the implied acceptance is determined by the conduct of the parties, not what they said, but how they acted and what they did. And in Henderson, this court found an implied contract, and we would submit that all those facts are present in this case as well. Thank you. Thank you very much for your arguments. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All rise. Thank you. This session of the North Carolina Court of Appeals is adjourned.